Thank you, Jonathan, for the good songs, and Christian for excellent reading of, of Scripture, and Mar for the wonderfully worded prayer. Uh, always love being here with everyone and being together and sharing in fellowship. I think, well, I don't think, I'm, I'm pretty certain uh, that that time we spend together uh, is probably, probably better for us than, than anything I'm going to say, uh, that the relationships we build are what keep us strong in our faith, they're what encourage us, they're what build us up, and we always want to encourage that. I love getting to visit with all of you. We've been discussing for a couple of weeks a concept about how to look at life. How do we look at this life and our faith in this life? Do we look at it as we've just been dropped down here, we've got a few years, and we're going to do as many good things as we can, uh, and limit the bad things that we do, and try to just you know, do, do what we, it seems we've been told to do? Or are we going to look at the years we have in this life as a precious commodity? Because that's what it is. Uh, what makes life worth living is the limit of it. It's finite. There comes an end to this life. There comes an end to everything. Uh, the ambition that people have, the effort that we put forth, the things we strive for are all really centered on the reality we understand that life is limited. Uh, and, and, you know, as someone who studied the field of economics and looking at value and supply and demand, you know, I kind of think that way sometimes. Uh, I don't always live that way because the one thing that is in the shortest supply is life. Uh, it, we know it's going to come to an end. We know that it's going to be taken from us and from those that we love. Uh, and this world will, will wind down one day. And what will we have done with that time? And are we treating it as the valuable commodity that it is? Or do we think like people who know there is an end, but who live like they're going to live forever? Um, I think we probably do the latter more often than not. We don't think about the end. And recognizing that, knowing that life has a limit, that it has an end, and knowing that there is only one escape from death, separation from God, and total annihilation. There's one. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. When you read scripture, it's very clear there are many, many ways to get to hell. There's a lot of ways. Uh, I've said in our study on Revelation, when we're talking about the battle that's going on between God and between Satan uh, that's described in that book, that the, the interesting thing about faith is that for Jesus to win, we have to look to him. For Jesus to win, we have to be focused on him. But for Satan to win, we just have to focus on anything else but Jesus. So there's a lot of things in this world that can take us off the path that's intended for us, there's only one way to stay on the path. If, and as I've described it, we are under a terminal diagnosis, that means we get permission to be a little bit crazy about our faith, to be radical in the way we live, and to be ambitious and zealous in the way that we live out our faith. And that's what we're talking about in these few weeks the aspects of our faith and how we live it out and how we can take it a step beyond what we think of it as. Last week, we talked about being of service to others. 
and that radical service is not just simply doing good things for people in need. It's looking at people as eternal creatures who were created in God's image and who are loved by Jesus. And we serve them because of what he did for us. This week, we're going to talk about something that's actually a really unique aspect of our faith, and that is evangelism and being radically evangelical. Now, that word, evangelical, that doesn't provoke a lot of awe-inspiring sort of attitudes because that word's been a bit co-opted in the political sphere, in social and cultural things, to mean someone who is very zealous about a belief they have and overbearingly so to others, to where they will impose that belief on others. I don't believe that the Bible calls us to that definition of evangelism. Uh, we are certainly not zealots uh, in, the, in the traditional definition of zealotry. Uh, we don't uh, kill people or harm people who don't agree with us. Uh, we are a patient, grace-filled, and loving people. But we are unique in the world of faith because evangelism typically is in one of two camps in the whole pantheon of world religions. It's either in the, that zealot camp where if you're not with us, you're against us, and we're going to eradicate you. Um, extreme uh, Islam uh, certainly practices that, but there are also certainly extreme versions of Christianity and extreme versions of a lot of religions that would not, maybe not end the life of those who do not accept their faith, but certainly would harm and do harm or have a viewpoint of people who don't share their faith that is damaging. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is we don't evangelize at all. We, are, we have been given the message, the truth. We accept it. We live it. We're a closed community. We're not interested in winning any new people to this. There were those kinds of communities uh, even in, in the time of Christ. When you read about the different sects of, uh, of Jews, uh, theologically, and really political parties. They were political parties. You had the Pharisees. We all know the Pharisees, right? You had the Sadducees. Pharisees were kind of the progressive liberals, and the Sadducees were the very conservative uh, of, the, uh, of, of those. And we don't think of them that way, but they really were, which tells you something. Then you had, uh, you, it's mentioned, the, this group called the Essenes. You read about them a couple of places. Uh, they didn't believe in any kind of evangelism or winning people to their side. In fact, they didn't even believe in reproduction. Uh, they would not practice the things required for reproduction, and that's why there are no more Essenes. There are closed communities, and there have been throughout time, that believe they've received the word, they're going to live the word, but they have no interest in sharing the word, and they don't feel compelled to. And that's not just in Christianity, but in all forms of religion. There's always that segment. And that segment does what that segment is going to do, and that is die off eventually. It happens. So we have two ends of a spectrum. We have the super radical where we're going to hate you if you don't agree with us, and we have the not-so-radical, we're going to keep this to ourselves. Well, the Bible does not teach either of those extremes, and the Bible doesn't simply teach us to be passive sharers of a message. The Bible doesn't even teach us that what we are to share is the Bible, because What does Jesus say in the verse that Christian read? And we think sometimes the Great Commission is we're to go out and we are to teach people this book, and if they do the things in this book, then they're one of us and we win. That's 
That's not the kind of evangelism we're called to. We're called to something a little deeper than that. This thing, this leather-bound collection of books here, relatively new. It's, it's a great tool we have. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God's revelation of man. It is our story. I believe that. But Jesus did not say, all authority has been given to me and some books some people will write in the next hundred years. That's not what Jesus said. He said, all authority has been given to me. We are to share Jesus. We can do that through our scriptures. We can do that through our teaching and our preaching and our relationships. But Jesus is at the heart of what we teach. That's radically different from what the rest of the world does when it comes to faith and evangelism. Other religions are out to teach a certain way of living, a certain standard of practice, and a certain set of rules. We do have standards to which we believe God calls us to obey and to live. But we do not evangelize people to join a club that has certain bylaws. We evangelize people to be covered by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's a very different outlook. In Romans chapter 10, this is what Paul writes. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then verse 14 is a really poignant question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And that, that doesn't mean just me, by the way. doesn't just mean the person that stands up. That's a, that's a generic word. A proclaimer. Someone who will tell them something. And that's all of us. Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome trying to settle a dispute that was, had arisen amongst them regarding their ethnic heritage. And in the midst of it, he's saying, you guys need to get rid of all of this division because there are still people who haven't heard the good news. And how will they hear it unless you tell them? Radical evangelism is not simply selling someone on a standard of living or a set of rules to live by. It's convincing them of something and convicting them of something. And it goes back to what we started with. There is one way to receive eternal life through Christ. How can we embody that story and how can we embody that message? By keeping Jesus at the forefront of all we do. By putting Jesus front and center in that story, in our preaching, in our teaching. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians, he starts the, the he, 1 Corinthians kind of, he's excoriating these people. They've been doing a lot of things wrong. Now he still calls them brethren. He still says he loves them, but he's talking about all the disputes that they're having. Paul was really doing a lot of settling disputes because it was a confusing time. We have disputes now and we, we book chapter and verse those disputes and we figure out who's right and who's wrong, don't we? But they didn't have book, chapter, verse. They relied on the wisdom of those uh, who were given to be apostles and teachers. And they studied the scriptures to understand their God as best they could. And they shared the story of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes in chapter 1 uh, of that book, 
that they're arguing about baptism. They're arguing about who baptized who and who follows a faith heritage that is more significant than someone else's. And Paul said, you know what? If that's what you're going to do, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Now, how long would a preacher stay employed in our churches today if they said, I'm glad I didn't baptize anyone? Not very long, because that's what we care about. That's, that's important, and it is. But in the face of the importance of that, Paul says, I didn't come to you to baptize you. In other words, I didn't come to you just to get you wet. I didn't come to you just to put you in water. I came to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The rest of those things will follow. And this is not to diminish how important those aspects of what we teach are. But evangelism is about Christ. The Great Commission is the sharing of the good news, the sharing of the gospel. It's so much more than what we make it. Evangelism evolves. And it's okay that evangelism evolves. Uh, I, was, I got a call earlier this week from uh, a minister uh, at a church in Arkansas inviting me sometime in July to come and be a speaker in their series. They're doing a series on evangelism uh, and, and particularly local evangelism, how, how we engage with our community and how we, uh, how we grow efforts to do that. And we were having this conversation on the phone, and I said, you know, it's, it's funny because those things evolve. And they should evolve. And we hold on to ministries uh, and programs and projects way too long. Way too long. Uh, anybody in here remember the era of the joy bus? Anyone? Yeah. Marvin Dow, Okay. All right. There's some. Well, way back. I say way back. Way back for someone my age. All right. But, but back in a time, local churches would take a bus and they'd drive it through town and they'd pick up kids and bring them to church. Um, that makes lawyers uncomfortable today when we talk about that sort of thing. It makes parents uncomfortable. And at some point, I'm sure somebody in, I don't know, 1985 had to sit down and go, you know, I think the joy bus thing has run its course. At some point, we had to move on to something new. And the things that are cutting edge and working today, we're going to move on from that too. Holding on to ministries, holding on to projects and programs is inserting ourselves into the good news. The Bible says the good news is what matters. You figure out how you're going to share it, but be willing and humble enough to let go of things when they're not working, when they've run their course, and move on to something else. It's okay to do that. You're not giving up on God. You're, fine. you're humbly opening your mind and your heart to Him leading. We pray sometimes for doors to be open. For opportunities to be presented to us. But we don't often pray that God will open our eyes to the opportunities that are already there. Spiritual things are happening all around us all the time. We don't have the kind of eyes that are made to see them. But God can give us those eyes to see the opportunities that are already there. Because they exist. If we're willing to humble ourselves and take the step to do it, if we're willing to humble ourselves and let go of our preconceived notions about how it should be done, and if we're willing to humble ourselves and understand that Jesus is the good news, not the fact that the preacher is in town. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross, not that we have a wonderful church we want to tell you about. The good news is that God cared enough and loved us enough 
to offer the sacrifice that was sufficient for our sin. And that story has always been and always will be transformative, but it will also always be difficult. Now, I don't want to paint just a complete rosy picture here about evangelism, that we're going to walk into town or to our job or to our school and start telling people about Jesus, and everybody's just going to be so excited to hear it because the story of Jesus can be a polarizing one. We are not always, in fact, not often going to be welcome with that story everywhere we go. And that's hard because we've been given a really tall order. And churches often do evangelism classes or workshops. Um, There's a lot of them out there, and a lot of them produce very good results. Um, But we get in those meetings and those workshops, and we talk about different ways we can evangelize and different strategies, and we get really excited. We're going to go out and we're going to, you know, change the world. And uh, and then, you know, like day one, uh, someone slams the door in your face, whether literally or proverbially, and it's discouraging. It's hard. Evangelism is hard. Uh, I used to work in sales, professional sales. And the number of no's that you have to hear to get to yes is staggering. Depending on the industry, you know, it's it's vast majority of the time you're going to be told no to get to that one yes. The resilience that it takes to work in that industry and to get good at it and to actually make a living at it is it's a lot. Um, I, I do this now because I didn't have that. Okay, and, and even this isn't easy, but, but the, what we have to hear in terms of no to get to yes, and we know because Jesus already told us, you're going to hear no more than you hear yes. He gave us instructions on how to leave a place that rejects the gospel. He told his disciples what to do if they say no. The fact that he had to give that instruction ought to clue us in. Evangelism is hard. Sharing the gospel is a challenge. There's not a lot of natural incentive in this life. You're not going to get a lot of pats on the back, and you're not going to gain a whole lot in this world by being evangelistic for Jesus. Our gain, we understand, is something after this. So how do we combat this? How can we be radically evangelistic in a world that is anti-evangelism? Our world is very much, especially Western cultures right now, is very much, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you do what you want to do, and we're going to leave each other alone. Uh, That has a lot of uh, historical basis in the founding of our country, in fact. That rugged individualism and and that sense of, of identity we try to leave each other alone. So how can we be involved in other people's lives to tell them something transformative about one of the most intimate parts of who we are, our spiritual life, and protect ourselves and encourage ourselves and wake up every day wanting to do it again? How, how do we find the resilience and perseverance? Again, I think it is our perspective. I think it's how we look at the world. If we look at evangelism as a sales job, It's hard to get up every day wanting to do that because it's not a sales job. I'm not going door to door asking if somebody wants to buy Jesus today. If they want to, you know, commit to following these rules, 
and believing this certain thing. That's not what evangelism is. But evangelism starts with how we see one another and, more importantly, how we see ourselves. We talked about service last week, and we said we have to have an eternal perspective of one another in order to be radically of service to each other. Not just to do good deeds, but to understand there is a child of God and a soul behind that person, and you want to serve them because of who paid for them. And the same is somewhat true of evangelism, except a little bit reversed. Why do I want to share the gospel with anybody? It starts with me recognizing how I benefited from the death of Jesus Christ. If the death of Christ and the truth of my sin is not real to me and evident to me and something that I, I live by every day, my sense of evangelism is stunted. And I can tell you this because I lived it. And I still live it. This is my biggest battle with evangelism. Okay, I grew up in the, the, like the buckle of the Bible belt, okay? I, I was right in the middle of it. Church is everywhere. I went to a Christian school. I learned, uh, you know, I, I was in the first grade and I could recite all the books of the Bible and I knew all the little songs and I knew all the stories. When I went to college, a Christian college, and I took uh, sur- New, New Testament survey, that's the freshman Bible class you take your first semester, my first college class. And I'm sitting there with like 100 other people, right? And we take our first test. Our first test was write the books of the Bible. I had that thing done in two minutes. Now, there was a cute girl on the other side of the room, and she went to one of those pagan public schools, and it took her a little longer. And I was glad because I got to wait on her to leave, and we left at the same time, and I asked her out, and then I married her. So that thing kind of happens sometimes too. So it worked out. But... When you grow up in that environment, you grow up going to church. Yeah, I became a Christian. I decided that I needed to give my life to Jesus. And I recognized that as a human being, I have sin in my life and I want to be cleansed and redeemed. And I did that. But I never actually felt lost. I felt compelled. I understood it was the right thing to do and why. But I never felt lost. I never had a moment where I went, oh my goodness, I'm going to go to hell if I don't do something about this. But I met people who felt lost. I've met people who hit a point in their life where they actually felt the threat of a separation from God. And they were convicted by the message of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and shedding his blood in their place And they felt that pain in their heart, and they did something about it. And I can tell you that people who have lived that life are going to be exponentially better at evangelism than I can ever be. It's just not my experience. I have to manufacture that that perception. I have to somehow remind myself every day of the truth of that situation in order to be better at what I do. And it's hard. And for a lot of us, I think we're probably in that same boat. I don't know how many of us really felt lost at any particular time. Maybe you have. I would tell you that's a great blessing. That's a great blessing. Because you understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10. 
You understand what it was to be that person sinking in your own sin, flailing in your own life, screaming out for an answer, not knowing which way to turn, and being confronted with the beauty of the cross. And it makes it that much easier for you to look to those around you and say, I wonder if they know about Jesus. That's a hard one for me. You understand when Paul says, how can they hear if no one tells them? How can they believe if no one shares the message? And how can this work unless we go? Unless we go and tell them. Radical service requires that we see the love that God has for each of the people he's created. Radical evangelism requires that we understand the lostness of our own soul apart from Jesus in order to be motivated to share the gospel with others. Until we recognize what Jesus did for us on the cross, we will never feel compelled to tell others. But when we see the desperation of our soul, when we accept the hopelessness of our situation, we will look at others as those who suffer alongside us in this thing called humanity in need of the same solution that we found in Jesus. Evangelism is at the heart of who we are. God, or Jesus didn't just say as he prepared to ascend to dwell with the Father, he didn't just say, okay, now try to do a good job of obeying while I'm gone, and then I'll be back. He said, no, I'm bringing authority from heaven, and I am passing that on to you and telling you, you need to tell other people. What did Jesus say during most of his ministry? Most of the time he's on earth, he's healing, he's telling parables, he's performing miracles, he's, and, and, and he says, don't tell anybody about this right now. Don't tell anybody about this. See, he had more to do. He had a job to finish. And then when he was done with that job, he said, okay, now go tell people. Now go tell everyone what I've done and bring them back with you to be with me. God wants to save everybody. And I'm betting he's going to save more people than I think he will because he's trying to. And that's just fine with me. It really is. But in the meantime, I've only been given one job. We joke about that phrase. You had one job. We say that sarcastically when someone does something idiotic and messes something up. You had one job. Well, as Christians, we really just have one job. That's to share the story of Jesus, the same one that saved us, and maintaining that gratitude by understanding our state before Jesus and after Jesus is a key to compelling an evangelistic fire within us to tell the rest of the world. It's where we find our perseverance and our resilience in the face of opposition. It's where we find our motivation in the face of complacency. And it's where we find our obedience in the place of a pluralistic world that tries to distract us. We're not selling a rule book and we're not promoting a social club or a civic organization. We are telling a story. A story of a God and his people 
and how he saved them in spite of themselves. We don't have another choice. If the choice is between being evangelistic and celebrating my salvation or being lost and separated from God, then I might as well go all in on telling others this story and telling my story because all of our stories are interwoven, united in one central fact. As Paul writes in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. He didn't say, okay, complete these prerequisite courses and then you can become a Christian. No. Where we were, as we were, he took us, accepted us, and saved us. God does not call us up to be his standard. He comes down and brings us to his standard through Jesus. And that's a story worth telling. And I hope that we all will find opportunity and look for opportunity to share that. I'm going to ask Jonathan to come up now and lead us in a, a song. We call it an, a song of invitation because it is an open invitation for anyone who needs prayer or encouragement in that journey or to take that step to accepting Jesus Christ. Go ahead and let's stand and sing together.